We began this series looking at this diagram where we see the individual hours framing the holy sacrifice of the Mass and extending the infinite value of the Mass throughout time. And tonight we're going to drill down and talk about those individual hours. But first I thought I might address a question that came up last week after the session and that was about the monastic office versus what we're talking about here, which is a form of the secular office. I mentioned that there are many forms of the divine office, and the monastic office follows, more or less, the rule of Saint Benedict. And the Roman office is adapted, as we have it now, is adapted from that model of Saint Benedict, distributing the 150 psalms over the course of a week. And many of the, of the reforms to the office through the years have been attempts to restore the full praying of the Psalter during the week because it got clouded with more and more feasts to where you almost never prayed some psalms. They would appear once or twice a year because you were so clouded with the psalms of Sunday. So the monastic office has maintained for most monasteries at least some form of Benedict's distribution of the psalms throughout the week. And uh, I think it was 19, well, I better not try to remember, I'll be wrong. Sometime in the 70s, the Benedictine Confederation, the, uh, the mother house of the, the Benedictine, and each monastery is independent, but they form little confederations. And there is a central governing authority for all these confederations in Rome. And they developed something called the Tessaris, or the treasury of forms that offices, or pardon me, that individual monasteries can draw on to create an office for that house. So each uh, um, independent monastery has the ability to create an office that they will sing, but it follows certain bits of this model. So I've avoided talking about the monastic office. It's a beautiful thing, and, and if you enjoy praying the monastic office, it's great. Uh, there is a, a, a very popular version of that printed in Latin and English from St. Michael's Press in Farnborough in England, and it's readily available. It's the monastic diurnal. It has all the hours except matins, uh, because monastic matins is uh, very long. It has even more lessons than the Roman. Not a lot more content, but it has more lessons. They're just broken up slightly differently. But if you uh, are intrigued by that, you might uh, pick up a copy of that and find it useful. I know several people here in the oratory pray the monastic office and pray, the, uh, pray from that diurnal. I'm going to begin tonight reading you another example that someone brought to my attention this week. And I think Peter Kwasniewski actually ended up posting it somewhere as well after, after it was sent to me. This is a, an article from the Boston Globe will shock you, because the Boston Globe is certainly no friend of Catholicism. 
the Boston Globe, but it's from the 1st of April, 1904. And the heading is Throng at Cathedral. Chanting of Tenebrae attended by over 3,000. The aged archbishop's deep, rich voice easily recognized. That's the heading. Last night, more than 3,000 people assembled in the Cathedral of the Holy Cross at the chanting of the Office of Tenebrae. Every seat in the spacious edifice was occupied when the service began at 7.30. Archbishop Williams, as has been his custom for over a quarter century, was present and was one of the chief contributors to the solemn chanting. His deep, rich voice was easily recognized. The Psalms, Matins and Lauds, were chanted by the 100 or more seminarians in the large sanctuary choir, and it was evident all through the night that the deepest interest was being manifested in the Gregorian chant. The altar of the Blessed Virgin was illuminated with candles and adorned with rich draperies and cut flowers. There's a Todd to you. And it was to this altar that the Blessed Sacrament had been removed yesterday morning, and it was visited by hundreds before and after the service of last night. So as recently as 1904, we see evidence that the divine office was still an integral and popular part of Catholic culture. And tonight, after reviewing the theology of the office in part one, what we do when we pray it, and looking at the calendar in part two that determines its content on a given day, the why of what we do, tonight we look at the individual hours, examine their structure, how they carry out in practice this theology, and the celebrations we outlined in the first two parts, that is, how we do it. I'll begin with an incident. For over 30 years now, I have been a great devotee of the Museo del Prado, the Prado Museum in Madrid. And as true of a lot of classical art, many of the Prado's paintings are rich with Catholic iconography that sadly is little understood and even less appreciated in our day, despite the fact that writers have provided volumes of commentary and explanation. Unlike the vast majority of museum exhibitions that I visit, and I visit a lot, the Prado still has at least some curators and guides who are not completely clueless about such things. Unfortunately, we can't say that about any museums in Britain. They have no clue at all about their heritage and history. It's sad. In any event, among its many priceless treasures is the largest collection of the paintings of Dominicus Theotokopoulos, better known as Il Greco. One afternoon, I noticed in his painting of the Annunciation, and I had looked at it for years by this time, that down at the bottom there was an image of the burning bush tucked in there. It was hidden in the background. Again, I'd walked by it many times and never seen it. Obviously, the burning bush is a reference to the third chapter of the book of Exodus, the story of the call of Moses where God speaks from within a bush burning but not consumed. Why did he put this in a painting of the Annunciation? 
Well, the reason is that the fathers of the church saw in the burning bush a prophetic image or type of the, of the perpetual virginity of the Blessed Mother, or Theotokos, as she's known in the East. Several Greek fathers wrote of this type, and there are many famous icons representing it, and a Greek painter would almost certainly have known these icons. Theotokopoulos, whose Greek name, by the way, means child of the Theotokos, was born in Crete, which was then under the control of Venice. So he moved to Venice at age 24 to further his artistic career. How would this image, maybe he saw it in the icons, most likely he did, how would he have kept it in mind? Why did he think that it would be widely understood by most of those in the West, in Venice, who saw his painting? I put to you that most likely it's because this image is clearly sung eight times in the divine office every year on the feast of the Theotokos, on the 1st of January, as an antiphon at first and second vespers, lauds and terse. And so he would have heard repeatedly, Rubum quem vider ad moises in combustum conservatam agno vemus tuam laudabilem virginitatem Dei genitrix intercede pro nobis. That bush which Moses saw burning but unconsumed, we acknowledge as your most conserved and laudable virginity. Mother of God, intercede for us. And so we note again, as we've noted before, the office hours were well attended on major feasts, and the texts were well known and catechized in sermons and in art. I put to you probably better in art than sermons. You know that most medieval churches, even tiny little parish churches and chapels, did not have bare walls. The walls were filled with paintings. The outsides were colored, now the colors have faded over time, but these were covered inside and out with colored paintings, brightly colored paintings, representing scenes from the scriptures and from the, from the lives of the saints. That is genuine enculturation, allowing the divine word to permeate and change us to conform to Christ not the false reverse of that that's so much touted in our times, which is anything but enculturation. Sadly, a majority of Christians today, Catholics included, are for the most part unconsciously practicing Gnostic Docetists, two of the most prominent heresies of the early church. Gnosticism reduces Christianity to a message or knowledge of how to live. If they show up for Mass, it's in order to be given information or content, to use the word currently in vogue. Our Divine Lord, if he figures into the equation much at all, is merely the heavenly bringer of that knowledge. Holy Communion is a symbolic token of receiving information in the information age. His humanity is more of a cloak than a reality. 
and the consequences of his humanity they really don't like. Said another way, Christianity is reduced to knowing something rather than being Christ incarnate now in the flesh, as St. Paul says we must be in his second epistle to the Corinthians. So the heart of the practical experience of dedicating our bodies and minds to celebrating the divine office will make little sense to this mindset. And I have to take another sidebar here. There is a big discussion today about the value of two styles of divine office, one called the cathedral, the other called the monastic. We said a little about the monastic office initially. The monastic office focuses on trying to get all the Psalter prayed over the course of a week and a broader selection of readings from sacred scripture. There's another style called the cathedral office, which has as its model a very small number of psalms sung over and over and over again in a given context. Now, that's the theory, and it became very prominent with some scholars, uh, Juan Mateus, probably the greatest of them, over the course of the 20th century. Most modern research has put paid to much of that theory because in reality, there was a lot of overlap and these two styles did not exist like little silos and they were not mutually opposed. There were bits of each style in every office and the Roman breviary tries to strike a balance between them so that we have the Psalter, we have a lot of scripture, but we have enough repetition that certain parts of it will become familiar. One major problem we mentioned in part two of this series is the modern trend to remake liturgy with a linear logic, something it never previously had. Traditional liturgy does not move from point A to point B to point C and so on. We mentioned last week the Anglican scholar Catherine Pickstock, who has written extensively on this in her important, though I warn you, extremely challenging book, very difficult to read, called After Writing. I have it on the bibliography sheet. And the subtitle is On the Liturgical Consummation of Philosophy. The power of repetition plays a big role in this. That's a part of our important heritage from the East, and repetition there is abundant, far more than in the West. Oddly, the same people who make the most noise about our needing to model ourselves more on the East are the same people who then went on to strip our Western traditions of what authentic character they have and reduce them to a Western simplicity and their new linear logic. Paradoxically, this approach always fails in its purpose because the Roman maxim, repetitio mater studiorum, repetition is the mother of learning. Every student once learned this in the classroom, but it seems to have long been forgotten. Perhaps, this is a victim of modern technology's replacement for what was once a function of memory. I'll leave that as a question to you. In the office today, however, we still have, at least in the traditional office, I should say, many examples of valuable repetitions that remain. I'll just list a few of them. In the course of a day, we pray the Paternoster 19 times at least six more when we have the ferial breaches. 
Oh, one comment about the potter. The potter nostris always prayed silently other than three times a day. That's an ancient tradition. So it's prayed at uh, uh, prime vespers and uh, can be prayed out loud three times and at, and at Holy Mass, of course. We pray the Ave Maria nine times, always in silence. We pray the Credo three times or one more if we have ferial preaches. And one of them has a, a versicle and response conclusion. We play the Gloria Patri 52 times, twice more if we have the preaches. We pray the Confidior at least twice, and again, once more if on the ferial preaches days. We have the power of octaves. We have eight days after major feasts to repeat and meditate and absorb versus the incessant verbiage of new words. And this is, I think, another one of the great advantages we have in praying the pre-55 office. We still maintain the octaves, which were wiped out pretty much by Pius XII in 1955. And finally, we have the introductory and concluding prayers that we're gonna talk about in just a moment. Those are the ones on your little sheet there below the Veni Sancti. By the way, one of the best, or maybe I should say the worst, examples of this elimination of quote-unquote needless repetition in the Novus Ordo Mass is that the double ablution or cleansing of the vessels after Holy Communion was reduced to one. And when this happened, the reality of real presence was weakened in the mind of both clergy and faithful. And we lost in the process a very precious prayer. If you pick up your missal and you read the two prayers for the ablution of the vessels after Holy Communion, I would challenge you to find a more perfect prayer of thanksgiving for the reception of Holy Communion. It's hard to find. A closely related problem to the degrading of the value of repetition, or perhaps more accurate to say, the underlying cause of that degradation is the reversal of the traditional priority of praise of God over instruction of the faithful. We always have to have some new information. Over the course of the 20th century, what has traditionally been seen as a secondary effect, very real but secondary, instruction now became primary. The entire structure of the Novus Ordo Mass and Office reflects this but perhaps we can see it most prominently in the changes to the lectionary of both office and mass, culminating in the three-year cycle of readings in the Novus Ordo, something most people now clearly, well, except for a few people who, you know, so blind they will not see, who now recognize as counterproductive. An example of this just this evening, we had I was anticipating tomorrow the office for uh, St. Uh, John of the Cross, and the third set of readings at Matins are homilies by St. Gregory the Great that we have many times about the gospel of let your lamps be burning bright, and he goes into it. And it was interesting because when it follows, this, in the second nocturne, we read, and we chatted about that last week, we read the lives of the saints, and you read the life of San Juan de la Cruz in the, uh, in the second nocturne, and then you get, and you read these homilies, which you've read many times, but they take on a new characteristic, a new twist, a new underlying meaning that one has never seen before, because all of a sudden, the life of San Juan de la Cruz comes 
right through the homily. You can see how he lived out the message of the gospel that St. Gregory is writing about. To cite only one example of many, in the structure of matins, and I just gave you a particular example that hit me this evening, the traditional cycle of nine lessons framed, uh, are framed by ceremonial absolutions, blessings, responses, and responsories. Those are longer forms of responses. But gradually, for the new office, they morphed into two lessons with no surrounding ceremonies. They have at least retained the responsories. Again, the focus dramatically shifts then toward the didactic instead of the laudatory, instructing those who pray the office, rather than laudatory praising the God to whom the office is supposed to be directed. Again, the irony is by opting for function over form, the function of the form no longer works as well as it ought. A little bit more history and then we'll get down to the hours. Alexander Pope wrote the famous quote, order is the first law of heaven. St. Thomas Aquinas would agree. God's creative action in the first chapter of Genesis is to bring order out of the chaos of the abyss, to lay the foundation for a bit of heaven on earth for the human creatures he would create in his own image. Humans crave order. And after the disorder called by the fall of our, caused by the fall of our first parents, and our subsequent descent into the chaos of our own making, we eagerly await the redemption that would restore the order God intends. One important way that we seek this restoration of order is in prayer, and especially prayer in a fixed order at set times. St. John Henry Newman comments on this human need for set times. Religionists, for example, he says, who give up church rites are forced to recall the strict Judaical Sabbath. There's no such thing as abstract religion. When persons attempt to worship in this, what they call, more spiritual manner, they end, in fact, not worshiping at all. And this frequently happens. Everyone may know it from his own experience of himself. Use, for instance, and perhaps those should know better than use, sometimes argue with themselves, what's the need of praying statedly morning and evening? Why use a form of words? Why kneel? Why can't I pray in bed, or walking, or dressing? And they end up not praying at all. Again, what will the devotion of the country people be if we strip religion of its external symbols and bid them just seek out and gaze upon the invisible? It will go away." End quote. Through human history, Prayer at set times, as we discussed last week, has been a practice of most religions. For example, through the medium of television, in no other way, if no in no other way, most people today are familiar with the daily calls to prayer required by Islam. In the Judeo-Christian tradition, the practice of prayer at set times was firmly in place by the time of the first temple, that of Solomon. Sacrifices of animals, bread, wine, fruits and oil were all offered there, accompanied by the chanting of psalms and the playing of sacred instruments. The temple was destroyed in 587 BC and there was no longer a place to offer animal sacrifices or hold the elaborate ceremonies that accompanied them, so exiled Jews began establishing houses of prayer, 
the Bet Midrash, the house of study and the house of prayer, now known as synagogues, where they could meet at designated times for this prayer and study. And they could offer their sacrifice of praise that we discussed last week by chanting the Psalms and by chanting the Torah. After they returned from exile and the temple was rebuilt, the rituals resumed of daily sacrifice and they became even more elaborate than they had been in the first temple. These ceremonies of the second temple then became the foundation stones of the mass and divine office we celebrate today. Now when the second temple was destroyed under the dominion of Rome, Jews scattered across the empire. Eventually they adopted the Roman method of marking the hours as their calls to prayer. The Roman Forum and also in the fora in every hub of the empire, rang bells at 6 a.m., which they called Ora Prima, Latin for first hour, to open the day's business. The bells were rung again at 9 a.m., Ora Tertia, or third hour, to mark the day's progress. The bells of noon, Ora Sexta, or sixth hour, heralded a lunch and a rest, the Spanish word for midday rest, siesta, maintains this tradition. It's a reference to Sexta, the sixth hour of the Roman reckoning. People were called back to work at 3 p.m. Ora Nona, or ninth hour, to toil again until light ended. The final bell tolled Ad Vesperam, at the evening, at sunset, for the close of business. Now after this, the night hours were divided into four vigilia, or watches, of three hours each. Christians also were scattered following the Lord's command to go and baptize all nation, and even more so following the, earth, the early persecutions in Jerusalem. But as they scattered, they too, like the Jews, adopted this Roman system. We still use these Roman names of the day hours in the divine office, prime, terse, sext, known, vespers. Vigils is the monastic name for Roman matins, the night hour. Lauds is a bit of an exception, and it uh, bridges, it lives in two worlds. It's traditionally attached to the night office, but it also in, uh, in many places marks the hour just before daybreak. There have been, however, through the years, different ways of counting and marking the hours. A few places count eight hours. Rome counts seven, treating matins and lauds as one hour, though usually when you see them enumerated, you will see eight of them. So why does the church reckon seven hours? First of all, it accords with the words of the psalmist. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice, and in the morning I will prepare a sacrifice for you and watch, and at midnight I rise to praise you because of your righteous ordinances. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous ordinances. All these quotes come from the great hymn to the hymn to the law, the Torah, in Psalm 118, the longest psalm in the Psalter. The Acts of the Apostles tell us that the Apostles themselves observed the Jewish custom at praying at the third, sixth, and ninth hours, and at midnight. Uh, there are countless examples of this. I'll just cite three of them. In the third chapter of Acts, Peter and John went up to the temple at the ninth hour of prayer. In the tenth chapter, Peter went up to the higher parts of the house to pray, about the sixth hour. And in the 16th chapter, at midnight, Paul and Silas praying praise to God, and they that were in prison heard them. 
The practice of seven fixed prayer times was already established by the time of Hippolytus of Rome, who lived in the, uh, the late second, early third century. He instructed Christians to pray, quote, on rising, at the lighting of the evening lamp, at bedtime, at midnight, and again, the third, sixth, and ninth hours of the day, since these are hours associated with Christ's passion, end quote. In the days of persecution, the Eucharistic liturgy celebrated in the catacombs or private homes of the faithful was preceded on great feasts by a vigil starting the night before, terminating with the celebration of Holy Mass after dawn. And again, remember, it took a long time before we had Mass every day. But we had office every day from day one, from the very beginning. The early Christians sang hymns of praise from the Psalms above all, but they also likely had a few hymns of their own composition. We have a few remnants of this in the Gloria that we pray at Mass and in the Te Deum that we pray at the end of Matins. And well, we also have a few lessons from the other parts of the scripture that contain hymns. These prayers grew to become distinct, yet intimately related to the Mass and the office. Just as the Jews had always observed the beginning of the day at sunset, the early church would begin the vigil with what would eventually become known as Vespers, with the lighting of the lamps. The vigil will continue through the night in a series of watches or nocturnes, to use the Latin word, as we still call them in the office of Matins, although they are known as vigils in monastic terminology still. And the last portion of the vigil to coincide with the, the rising dawn was the divine praises that we now call laudes matutinus, or lauds in English, and that's when we pray the Benedictus, which that great canticle of Zechariah that makes known, and we honor the Orient's exalto, Christ represented and seen in the sun rising in the east. These great vigils of the early church have given us the three major hours, Vespers, Matins, and Lauds of the traditional office, while the day hours, marked by the bells of the Roman Forum, account for the office's minor hours, ter sexton known. This leaves only Prime and Compline, seemingly the least ancient of the hours. Both were introduced in monastic communities before making their way into the church at large, where they quickly became very popular. As the early medieval monasteries commonly prayed in matins and lauds in the dead of night, this allowed them to go back to sleep without any further obligations until terse. And so one theory is that waking in the nine, the, at nine in the morning was considered slothful in the eyes of certain abbots. So they added prime. That's one theory for how prime appeared. There are others, but I like that one. In reality, as I mentioned, that early monastic cycle now, we seem to think traces a very primitive form of human sleep pattern. Altogether, by the sixth century, the divine hours had developed into something like the seven hours we have today. Vespers at sunset, Compline before bed, matins anywhere from midnight to before dawn, lauds at the conclusion of matins and joined with it to form the night office, prime at sunrise, terse at mid-morning, sext at midday, and known at mid-afternoon. Now, there have been a lot of other pious and uh, instructive reasons, perhaps, people have theorized why we have to have the mystical number seven. It was a memorial of the seven days of creation. It was an honor done to the seven petitions given us by our Lord in his own prayer, the Paternoster. 
It was a mode of pleading for the influence of that spirit who has revealed to us as sevenfold, the seven gifts. On the other hand, it was a preservative against the seven evil spirits, which are apt to return to the exorcised soul. And it was a fit remedy for those successive falls, which scripture tells us in the book of Proverbs, happened to the just man. Another author contexts the seven hours with various scenes of the passion, and so on. We find stages of human life. There are many, many reasons. People have given many mystical meanings to the hours through the years. But very early on, the hours were understood to be a mandatory, if not the most essential aspect of a cleric's duty to the church. The Apostolic Constitutions, an instruction for clergy dated around the fourth century, stated, quote, offer up your prayers in the morning, at the third, sixth, the ninth, the evening, and at cockcrowing, end quote. To this day, with a few exceptions, all clerics and major orders are bound to pray the office daily. So vital is this obligation that a priest is not bound to celebrate Mass, even on Sundays, but if he does so much as skip one of the hours of the office on a day without good reason, he commits a mortal sin. The Church has imposed this on clergy and vowed religious because their first duty is to live a life of prayer. In the Middle Ages, praying the office was so much a part of the cleric's job description that if he was known to neglect his obligation to office, he was to be denied his wages and even his food. What is more remarkable to us now is how integral the office was to the peasants and ordinary lay citizens of the medieval world who were not bound by oath to pray it. On the one end of the spectrum, the popularity of lavishly illustrated books of ours for the wealthy and the literate is well known and has been diligently studied. These make up the largest collection of illuminated manuscripts in existence. I've spent a lot of my life studying these and are among the most highly valued items in libraries and museums fortunate enough to own some. A typical book would contain the Little Office of the Blessed Virgin Mary, the Litany of Saints, the Seven Penitential Psalms, the Office of the Dead, and perhaps the Order of Mass and Devotions to use while attending Mass. Many people today, again, use forms of these books of ours. The Little Office of the Blessed Virgin Mary has become very popular, and I talked to you the first night about the ones that the bishops of the Second Council of Baltimore commissioned that has been reprinted as the Little Office of Baltimore. There are many little offices out there. These have become very popular. The 20th century, their name was Legion. There seemed to be a new one popping up every year, and uh, there were at least 100 that we've documented in some work that uh, a book we worked on, unfortunately, the, uh, the key author died before we could finish. Of course, the vast majority of laymen could not read. Nevertheless, they attended the hours which is with as much devotion as the nobility. Perhaps they could not always participate in the praying of Psalms. Almost all of them would memorize the words of the Magnificat or the Te Deum by heart hearing them week in, week out, and they would understand what they meant. The interior walls of all churches, as I just mentioned, were covered with paintings. And so even for an illiterate layman who regularly attended the office day after day since childhood, even matins would seem a lot less daunting. 
than it would be for a 20th century, 21st century believer attending it for the first time. The public celebration of the office cannot be stressed enough. Medieval clergy, for all their faults, would have found a parish without the daily offices simply unthinkable. One abbot's book talks about parish life in medieval England and notes that during visitations, when the bishop or his delegate came to inspect a church's facilities for the proper rendering of the divine services, he says, quote, the evidence of various visitations shows that even in the smallest churches were expected to be provided by the rector with the matins books. And in the, for instance, in the visitation of the churches in the Diocese of Exeter, there were constant notes as to the Libri Matutunales, the Matins book, being in need of repair, not being sufficiently good. And the, the uh, examples abound in text after text. Multiple sources attest that it was customary in England before the Reformation for people to arrive in church and attend Matins and Lauds before Mass on Sunday. Of course, that raises a practical question. If Matins is prayed in the middle of the night, why would lay people leave their homes? And most people suggest that in most parishes, Matins were deferred until the early hours of the morning. So might be prayed at maybe five or six in the morning. So while we see that the great trial of waking up in the morning is not a new one, the placement of Matins was adjusted to allow people to reasonably attend. Attending was so important that they could be bothered to rise quite early in the morning to attend the offices and still have time to go back home before returning once again for mass. To us today, this may seem like an excessive amount of time to spend in church for a layman, but in the Middle Ages, the liturgy was nothing less than the lifeblood of all religious devotion. And attending the liturgy, both hours and mass, was the reason for resting on Sunday. Servile work was still considered a mortal sin, and principally because it interfered with your obligation for worship. After the medieval period, even Reformation governments under the Protestants, such as Elizabeth of England, would enshrine this in secular law as well. And by the way, it's interesting to note that similar to Jewish practice, Sunday was reckoned from the Vesper hour on Saturday as it still is in the office today, for your obligation to abstain from work. So that's why the shops will all have to shut early on Saturday. A man known to labor on Sunday could be denounced by name from the pulpit. So it was taken very seriously, the obligation, the duty to hear matins and mass. And in the Book of Common Prayer, we still have that as the major feature. Even if some parishes in the, in the uh, English church do not have Mass on Sunday, but they will always have matins. So let's talk about how the hours work in practice. Every day, there are venerable prayers to be prayed before and after the office, and I printed them out on the sheet here. And the first thing that we pray every morning, and this is always prayed kneeling, is, and we'll pray it tonight before the hour of Compline, is this prayer called the Opry. Opry Dominios Ma'am. And you'll see it there. I have an English translation for you. So the first thing that we pray is we ask the Lord to open the mouth. I open my mouth. And as I explained last time, even if we don't have uh, the, uh, the uh, time to sing or to say all the words, we at least have to mouth the words if you're obliged to pray by law or precept. 
So those who are obliged to office must at least mouth the words. But then more importantly, we have the prayer as St. Benedict puts, that my mind might accord with my voice. Munda corque, cormeum. So cleanse my heart and then brighten my intellect. Enkindle my affections, that prayer that we pray to the Holy Spirit earlier, that we pray before every hour of study or class so that we might deserve to be heard. And of course, we pray as always through Christ our Lord. And then we pray that we might pray our office the same as our divine Lord would have made his prayer when he was on earth. And then at the end of the office, and we'll pray this tonight after Compline, we have another prayer that's always said kneeling, the Sacrosancte. And we remind ourselves that everything we've prayed during the day is always dedicated to the honor and glory of the Most Holy Trinity. And we remind ourselves that the way that we pray is always in union with all the angels and saints. And through that, our sins are forgiven. The Pater, we pray before each hour. I mentioned how many times a day we pray at the Pater Noster, the, the Lord's Prayer before each hour, remind us that we pray as our Savior commanded. Praying the Ave Maria reminds us that we pray in union with our Blessed Lady, just as the apostles did in the upper room, awaiting the descent of the Holy Ghost. Praying the Credo reminds us that our prayer should reinforce our faith in and expand our understanding of those mysteries we hold as true. And the prayer at the end of the hours makes us end as we began, reminding ourselves that what we do is share in the one eternal praise of God in the company of the Trinity, our Blessed Mother, and all the saints in glory. How do the individual hours work? Vespers, at the end of the workday, as light is fading, we say the most popular of all the hours. And the structure is going to be similar to Lord's. We begin with an introductory Pater and Ave. We have a standard introductory verse, and we'll pray it tonight in Compline. And the verse is always, O God, come to my assistance, Deus in auditorium meum intende. And we always make the sign of the cross when we pray that verse. And you'll see it there. And then we pray five psalms that are framed with antiphons. Now, antiphons are short little texts that are reflective either of a special aspect of the psalm for the day, or they are drawn from the mystery or the saint that we're celebrating, so that we pray this psalm in a way that is different. We pray it so that it brings out some aspect of the saint or the mystery we celebrate on that feast. And then we have what's called a little chapter of a little snippet of scripture. And the little snippet is supposed to remind us of a longer reading that we will hear either at Mass or in the office at another time. So we hear these little snippets in certain texts of Scripture we hear over and over and over again so we can meditate on them more deeply. We have another little versicle and response formula to phrase and just to draw everybody back into the action. Then we have the Magnificat, the Canticle of the Blessed Mother with its antiphon, followed by the Collect of the Day, and any commemorations. Now, commemorations are occasions when we remember other feasts that aren't the principal feast of the day, but are still worthy of mention. 
For instance, tonight in Vespers, we had Vespers were split between St. Clement of Rome, and I promised to Nicholas I wouldn't make any anger jokes, so I'm going to bypass the temptation. But we had St. Clement of Rome followed by the second half of Vespers, which focuses on tomorrow's Vespers, St. John of the Cross. It's very unusual. We did the same thing yesterday, but that doesn't happen very often. Usually Vespers will be uh, of the following feast. And then, but we'll commemorate the Feast of the Day, and we also had a commemoration of another martyr who doesn't rise, Felicity, who doesn't quite rise to the occasion of having her own feast, at least in the general calendar. Then we have a standard concluding formula with versicle responses. We pray the Benedictamus Domino, as we pray at certain times to end Mass, and we always end with a prayer for the faithful departed, the Fidelia Monime, may the, fa the souls of the faithful departed rest in peace. Then we pray silently another potter, versicle in response, Dominus et nobis suum pacem, may the Lord give us his peace, et vitam eternum, amen, and eternal life. And then we pray the Marian antiphon with its collect, as we'll do after Compline again. And right now the Marian antiphon of the season is the Salve Regina, which is always followed by a versicle in response and a collect. Oh, just one small thing. We, turn, we use the term little chapter, capitulum, it's a little chapter, and this is as opposed to, and sometimes there's uh, confusion with monastic or capitular chapter. In monastic life, capitular chapter refers to the habit, uh, when they pray the hour of prime, it's usually prayed in what's called the chapter room, and they meet to read a chapter from the rule of St. Benedict and get a little commentary from the abbot, and then they pray prime, and then they get their job assignments for the day. So that the monastic or capitular chapter is not to be confused with the little chapter. Compline. The prayer at the close of the day before bedtime is an ancient tradition in many religions and cultures stretching back even pre-Christian time, millennia, many millennia. In Christian prayer, we find traces of it all, oh, by the way, one of the main reasons why there's always prayer before bedtime is that going to sleep, the fear of death was very, very real. In, uh, the, the further you go back in among early humans, their fear of death was extraordinary. They, they always went to bed with the thought that they might not wake up. That was uppermost in their minds. And so Compline really focuses on this in the text as you'll see tonight. In Christian prayer, we already find traces of it in the second century with St. Cyprian, whose feast we celebrated recently. Then around the fourth century, St. Basil fixed its place in the office in the east and St. Benedict in the west. Though debatable, the Roman form is likely older than the somewhat shorter Benedictine form. The hour begins with a preliminary formula with a short lesson in the Confidior. You have a copy in front of you. And a standard introductory formula, three psalms with an antiphon, a hymn, little chapter, short responsory, the canticle Nuc Dimittis and its antiphon, Salvenos, a collect, a special conclusion, and the Marian antiphon of the season with its collect. And again, Pater Ave Credo silently afterwards. And of course, always concluded with the Sacrosancte. It's been one of the most popular hours to pray for clergy, religious, and monastics, and laity because most of the elements of the hour, apart from psalms and infrequently the hymn, do not change. This allows for most of it to be memorized with consistent repetition. Some forms of the office, for instance, the Benedictine and the uh, earlier form, the Tridentine office, yes, Joseph, I know, always sing the Sunday psalms so they too can become memorized. Ongoing debate, sorry about that. The name Compline means completion, and the texts refer to several types of endings. 
First, the end of the day, we reflect on the work, prayer, joy, sorrows, sufferings, and successes the day has brought us. We ask pardon for sins and failings. We give thanks and praise to God for having given us another day to give him glory. The Psalms are, as ever, the perfect fount of wisdom for reflection and for understanding ourselves and our place in the world. As Romani Guardini put it so well, quote, we place ourselves before God to whom all time, past or future, is the living present. Before God who is able to restore to the penitent even what is lost. We think back over the day gone by, what was not well done, contrition seizes upon and thinks anew. For what was well done, we give God humble thanks, sincerely taking no credit to ourselves. What we're uncertain about or fail to accomplish, the whole sorry remnant, we sink in entire abandonment into God's all-powerful love." Unquote. The second ending is the end of our lives. We mention that each time we sleep is a mini preparation for death, a memento mori. We see this in the texts that follow the psalmody, the hymn, the short responsory in Manus Tuas, the versicle and response that follow in the collect and conclusion. Third, the end of time. All liturgical prayer ultimately points us toward the parousia, the coming again of our divine Lord in glory at the end of this world. If we're happy to be in this life, we are, pardon me, I said that wrong. If we are to be happy in this life, we need to have a clear focus on the reality of God's creative and redeeming actions and why they exist. They are there to lead us to enjoy eternal life in his unending presence. The longest hour of the office is the hour of matins, the major part of the night office. After the preparatory prayers, the hour begins with the invocative versicle and response, an extra one, Domini labia mea aperias. We make a sign of the cross on the lips. Lord, open my lips and my mouth will proclaim thy praise. This reinforces the meaning of the words and the, the cross on the lips reinforces the meaning of the words and reminds us every time our lips open, it should be in some manner for the praise of God. Hopefully that's something we carry with us throughout the day. This is followed by the standard introductory versicle in response, Deus in agitorium meum intende. During this versicle, a sign of the cross is made with the right hand over the whole of the upper body. And this is a reminder that our body is the living temple of the indwelling Trinity, whom we praise in each Gloria Patri. Our bodies are dedicated by baptism to be first and foremost temples from which flow like streams of water the praises of the God who called us apart from the world to be his people and give him praise. Matins begins with a special antiphon known as an invitatory or invitation to prayer. It's one of my favorite parts of the office. And the, the antiphon changes according to feast seasons or days of the week and then we alternate with the strophes or sections of Psalm 94, the Venite, gorgeous thing. It has beautiful melodies to match the Gregorian mode of the antiphon. Very long, but very beautiful. My personal favorite thing to sing each day. This is followed by a hymn, which is again varied by feast, season, or day of the week. Then we have nine psalms with antiphons or th with either three or nine lessons which are readings from scripture, the fathers of the church, and the lives of the saints. Each lesson has a prayer before and after to ask God's blessing on the lector and thank God for generously giving us the wisdom 
proffered in the lesson. After each lesson, there's a long, very beautiful, melismatic, complex, melodious responsory. On most days, Matins ends with the Te Deum, a magnificent, powerful statement that our prayers united with the whole court of heaven. A collect and conclusion follow, but that's omitted when joined to Lauds. Now, Lauds is very much like Vespers, with a couple of exceptions. We have the fourth psalm is a canticle from the Old Testament. And in lieu of the Magnificat, we sing the canticle of Zacharias, the Benedictus. Followed by prime. Prime is the start of the workday, 6 a.m. And the great prayer there, opera manuum nostrarum dirige supernos. Guide the work of our hands for us. We have, again, we have Paterave Credo, the introductory formula. We have a hymn, three psalms with an, adamant, with an antiphon, little chapter, short responsory, and then some special prayers and a standard conclusion. But prime joined to it is the martyrology. We talked about the martyrology last week. This is where we sing the martyrology, or read the martyrology at least, and it has a little separate short lesson prayers and a conclusion. And again, Pater Ave Credo at the end. And again, in monastic communities, this is when you would have the chapter of the day giving the work assignments. The, the little hours, terse sext known, they're all of a similar formula. They're called little because of their brevity. Pater Ave, we have the introductory formula, a hymn, three psalms with an antiphon, little chapter, short responsory, versicle and response, collect in conclusion. Very short, very simple. Certain days, we add to these hours a long series of penitential prayers called the preaches. And they're just, uh, if you've ever attended a traditional 40 hours, at the end of the Litany of the Saints, you will have heard a version of the preaches. Before we sing Compline, I'm going to end this series of talks with a little bit of practical advice. If you decide to take up the office, once the newness and excitement of something new wears off, it can quickly become tedious and difficult. I warned you at the beginning, the office is usually about 90% opus and about 10% day. It's a lot more work. The challenge then is to continue to pray ut mens nostra concordat voci nostri, that our mind might be in agreement with our voice, as St. Benedict enjoins us. Abba Isaac taught Cassian, two great early Christian mystics, and Germanus when they came to him asking for some formula upon which to fix their attention so to keep their minds from wandering in prayer, he advised them to make a fervent plea of Psalm 69.2, the Deus in Agitorium, we pray at the beginning of every hour. This, according to Isaac, was the formula to which the monk was to cling continuously in his mind until, strengthened by constant use, he should find himself singing the Psalms, quote, not as though they had been composed by the prophet, David, but as if he himself had written them as if this were his own private prayer, gifted by the Holy Ghost, uttered amid the deepest compunction of heart. Then indeed, Isaac explained, the scriptures lie ever more clearly open to us, seized of the identical feelings in which the psalm was composed or the sung we become, as it were, its author. The sacred word stores memory, st pardon me, the sacred words stir memories within us memories of the daily attacks we've endured and are enduring, the cost of our negligence, the profits of our zeal, 
we see clearly as in a mirror what is being said to us and we have a deeper understanding of it. They are not like things confided to our capacity for remembrance, but rather we bring them to birth in the depths of our hearts as if they were feelings naturally there and part of our being. We enter into their meaning not because of what we have read, but because of what we actually experience and feel. End quote. This, Isaac argued, by way of our experience of the Psalms, we come to that purity of prayer in which, free of what is seen and sensed, ineffable in its groans and sighs, the soul pours itself out to God. And I'll end once again with the quote that I had the first night. The office is the most powerful prayer of the church after Holy Mass. Higher than benediction, even though the priest makes the sign of the cross with the two presents of Jesus himself. The office is even more powerful than the Holy Rosary with all its promises and indulgences. St. Alphonsus Maria de Liguori wrote in his meditations, many private prayers do not equal in value only one prayer of the divine office as being offered to God in the name of the whole church and in words appointed by God himself. Hence, St. Mary Magdalene of Pazzi says, in comparison with the office, all other prayers and devotions are but of little merit and efficacy with God. Let us be convinced then that after the holy sacrifice of the mass, the church possesses no source, no treasure, so abundant as the office from which we may draw daily such powerful streams of grace. <laughs>